Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, March 30th. In today's news, a choir practice in Washington state turns fatal. The FBI investigates congressional stock trades before the markets tanked, and the virus collides with maid culture in Latin America with deadly results. But first, the big idea. For six days straight, President Trump talked about reopening the country as quickly as possible. He picked April 12th because he thought it would be beautiful to see church pews packed with parishioners on Easter. Then he dug in, tuning out the unanimous assessment of public health experts and governors and mayors, which was that Easter would be far too soon because the worst still is yet to come. As the self-described wartime president kept putting it, the coronavirus was a silent enemy and America was winning. Last night, Trump beat a hasty retreat, announcing from the Rose Garden just before dusk that the federal government's stringent social distancing guidelines, which were set to expire today, will be extended through at least April 30th. As the number of coronavirus deaths in the United States surpassed 2,400, the president acknowledged that the silent enemy is gaining ground. Trump said his decision was driven by the science, but he may have been moved just as much or more so by the personal. Seeing body bags carried out of the hospital near his boyhood home in Queens and learning that a close friend was now in a coma. At least you could reach that determination based on the emotion he showed when he spoke about both. Trump said he was convinced by data models presented to him by two physicians, Tony Fauci and Debbie Burks, that the death rate in this country probably will not peak for another two weeks. The peak, the highest point of death rates, remember this, is likely to hit in two weeks. Nothing would be worse than declaring victory before the victory is won. That would be the greatest loss of all. He added, We can expect that by June 1st, we will be well on our way to recovery. We think by June 1st, a lot of great things will be happening. Now, Trump strained to avoid casting his decision as a concession, claiming that the Easter timetable was always just an aspiration and explaining that he knows more about the trajectory of the virus than he did a week ago. Regardless of how serious he had been when he first proposed reopening the country by mid-April, Trump won praise for the delay. Burks said that the task force reviewed a dozen models of the viruses spread in the United States, and they all predicted somewhere between 1.6 million and 2.2 million fatalities as their worst case scenario if Americans did not practice social distancing and take other mitigation measures. The prospect of 2.2 million deaths stuck with Trump. He repeated that statistic 16 times during his news conference on Sunday night. But something else haunted Trump, who in the past has been moved to act by imagery, such as when he ordered airstrikes in Syria in 2017 after seeing pictures of children who had been gassed by their own government. This time, it was images of New York's Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, where the president grew up, a facility he said he knows so well that he can picture the color of its exterior walls and the size of its windows. He said he's been watching pictures on television of body bags filling the hallways. He said he's been watching trailer trucks, freezer trucks, pull in because they can't handle the bodies inside. He said he's seen this happen in faraway lands, but it's something else entirely to see it in his hometown. Trump also may have shifted his approach to this pandemic because it's starting to touch closer to home in other ways. 
On Friday, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, Trump's closest ally on the world stage, announced he had tested positive. And a top British health official said Sunday that it could be six months before life in the UK returns to normal. And Trump last night, for the first time, said that a close friend whom he didn't name is struggling to fight the disease. He said the guy is a little older and heavy set, but he's a tough person. And apparently he went to the hospital and then the next day went into a coma. Trump marveled at the speed and horrible viciousness of the virus. This was a departure from the flippant way Trump talked about it just last week. The president a few days ago drew parallels to the seasonal flu and car crashes, arguing that both are responsible for far more tragedy than the coronavirus. He said people have been urging him not to do anything and just, quote, ride this out like a cowboy. But he said that's not acceptable. Moving the goalposts, Trump declared that if the death toll remains under 200,000 Americans, the country would, quote, have done a very good job. It's chilling to hear. Fauci, who runs the Infectious Disease Center at the NIH, said earlier Sunday that models suggest the virus could cause between 100,000 and 200,000 deaths and that millions of people could be infected if the social distancing guidelines stay in effect. But he stressed the 200,000 figure is a worst case estimate and is unlikely to pass. Fauci outed that making rapid testing for the coronavirus more accessible, providing results in minutes instead of days, will be key in determining when it's safe to reopen schools and businesses and ease social distancing rules in certain cases. For now, New York continues to be ground zero. The state eclipsed 1,000 confirmed deaths related to COVID-19 on Sunday. At a news conference, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo predicted that the death toll will eventually reach the thousands. He announced that the number of cases in his state is approaching 60,000, about half the national total. Nonetheless, Cuomo said the latest data shows some reasons for optimism. The rate at which the number of confirmed cases double has slowed to every six days compared with every two days in mid-March. The number of people discharged daily from hospitals who were infected is also climbing, meaning that people continue to recover. But there are still so many horrifying stories from the ground. They're now building field hospitals in Central Park. And yesterday, an 86-year-old woman died following a confrontation in a Brooklyn hospital in an attack that police say may have been motivated by a dispute over social distancing. Apparently, the woman and her alleged attacker, a 32-year-old woman, were both patients at the hospital sitting in the emergency room hallways waiting to be seen by a physician when the young woman says the old elderly woman got too close to her she allegedly shoved the older woman to the ground, which caused her to lose consciousness and then die. Burks, the coordinator of the White House task force, repeated her warning on Sunday that no state and no metro area will be spared. And a lot of the governors seem to really get it. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan said the virus is going to dictate the time frame for when to loosen restrictions. And he said that he expects in two weeks around Easter, Maryland is going to look a lot more like New York. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards warned that his state has only a few days runway before becoming totally overwhelmed. By the end of this week, he says New Orleans will be at capacity on ventilators. And next week, he warned area hospitals will be out of beds. In Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmer said officials are seeing numbers climb exponentially. She says the hospitals in her state are already at capacity and they're running out of supplies fast. She says they'll be in really dire straits soon. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. 
Number one, an outbreak of the coronavirus in rural Washington state has been traced back to a weekly rehearsal of a choir group. On March 10th, 60 members of the Skagit Valley Chorale attended practice. Since then, two members of that choir have died, three have been hospitalized, and 45 have either tested positive or shown symptoms of COVID-19. Eight people who were at the rehearsal told the Los Angeles Times that not a single person who was there that day was coughing, sneezing, or appeared in any way ill. They all brought their own sheet music, and they all avoided direct contact. A few helped themselves to mandarins that had been put on a table. But the singers were wary of the virus's growing death toll in Seattle at the time, so they said they were super careful to use hand sanitizer, avoid physical contact, and keep distance from one another as they sang. Local health officials have concluded that the virus must have been transmitted through the air by singers who were asymptomatic. If so, this would bolster the findings of researchers who say the virus can be transmitted through microscopic aerosols in addition to the much larger respiratory droplets that are emitted when someone coughs or sneezes. And this contagion continues afflicting Americans of all ages. Sadly, country singer Joe Diffie died from the coronavirus at 61 on Sunday. Folk singer and songwriter John Prine, who's in critical condition, is only 73. On Sunday, the virus killed April Dunn, a 33-year-old staffer in the Louisiana governor's office. And Michigan State Representative Isaac Robinson, a Detroit Democrat, died at 44 the virus also killed veteran CBS News journalist Maria Mercator, 54, in New York. She was a cancer survivor, which made her more vulnerable. And an Illinois infant who tested positive died over the weekend, the youngest person in the country believed to have succumbed to this contagion. Number two, the Justice Department is probing stock trades made by lawmakers who got classified coronavirus briefings. CNN reports that this inquiry, which is still in its early stages and being done in coordination with the Securities and Exchange Commission, has so far included direct outreach from FBI agents to at least one lawmaker, Senator Richard Burr, seeking information about the trades. Burr, a North Carolina Republican who is chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, was told very early on about how bad this would likely get has previously said that he relied only on the public news reports as he decided to sell between $628,000 and $1.7 million worth of shares on February 13th. Earlier this month, he asked the Senate Ethics Committee to review his trades given, quote, the assumption many could make in hindsight that he might have done something wrong. Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler from Georgia and her husband sold 27 stocks valued between $1.275 million and $3.1 million from January 24th through February 14th. They also purchased three stocks at a value of $450,000 to $1 million, including shares of Citrix, a software company that's gained approximately 15% in value since Loeffler and her husband bought it. The company makes software that lets people work from home. Loeffler has denied having any knowledge of these stock trades, saying she uses a third-party financial advisor. Her husband is chairman of the New York Stock Exchange. A spokesperson for Loeffler says she has not yet been contacted by the FBI. And Congress is also starting to prepare a fourth coronavirus stimulus bill. This one will take more time. Many expect the debate to begin in earnest 
in late April because members are back home. The Wall Street Journal says the ideas being floated include extending last week's package to make the benefits last longer, as well as plugging likely holes in the hastily assembled bill. One item in particular cited by both the president and Democratic leaders is a desire for more money to shore up state government budgets that have collapsed under lost tax revenues and new spending demands. Number three, looking overseas, every weekday morning for 14 years now in Brazil, housekeeper Betty Santos has left her Rio favela to take a crowded bus to the wealthy seaside district of Barra de Tujica. But the family she serves there now frightens her. It's the rich, those who can afford to travel and study abroad, who brought the coronavirus to Latin America. But it's the poor, she believes, who will pay. Imported by the wealthy, the virus is now reaching into impoverished communities through domestic employment, infecting people with fewer resources to combat the disease once they contract it. Rio's first death was a maid who's believed to have caught it from her employer, but she didn't have access to the same health care as her boss. Brazil is now turning some of its soccer stadiums, including the famed Maracanã, into hospitals and vaccine centers as it prepares for a surge in cases. In London, thousands of airline employees who have been grounded have been offered volunteer work in the city's makeshift Nightingale Hospital and other sites that are going to be opened across the country. Virgin Atlantic is contacting its 4,000 employees who work in London about the opportunity, and EasyJet says it's already contacted all 9,000 of its Britain-based staff. Many of these airline employees are already trained in first aid. And India's lockdown has been a total disaster and created mass chaos across that country. India ordered 1.3 billion people to stay home with essentially no notice. And a total shutdown of trains and buses prevented countless migrant workers from returning to their home villages, forcing them into makeshift shelters or open fields where they're subsisting on food handouts, hand washing, and social distancing are impossible. And frustratingly, the coronavirus is also giving Russia and China new opportunities to spread disinformation against us. A European Union document obtained by Reuters finds that Russia's state-controlled media has been using this crisis to undertake an ambitious disinformation campaign against the West, and in particular the United States. The goal is to sow the seeds of panic and distrust. The falsehoods being conveyed by the Russian government on Twitter, YouTube, and other platforms blame the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for concocting the virus, or they say that this was a bioweapon devised by the Pentagon. Neither of which is true, of course. Russia is not the only offender. The spokesman for China's foreign ministry has been casting doubt on the fact that the virus originated in his country, suggesting totally baselessly that it was actually introduced there by the U.S. Army. The CDC, alarmed by this swirl of disinformation being pushed by our adversaries, has pleaded with the American public not to share it. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, March 30th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Homan. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.